All right. Let's turn uh, back to Genesis 7 again. Uh, last week we did some introductory uh, introductory and explanatory things about Genesis 7 and and this week we want to pick up and look at the passage uh, in more detail. Uh, so let's uh, let's read chapter 7 again uh, and then we'll review a little bit what we talked about uh, last week and and uh, then go on and look at uh, look at the chapter in more detail. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean, and birds, and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. (coughs) Excuse me. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, and on the 17th day of the month, On the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which is the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days And the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed fifteen cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Okay? Well, last week we, we uh, talked pretty generally about this chapter. What do you remember we talked about last week? Okay, good, good. And we're going to talk about that some more today, this concept of repetition, and we're going to look at some of those repetitions today. What else? Okay, how do we know that? Okay, okay. Okay, 
We listed actually a number of reasons. You were supposed to take notes, Ryan, have it all down so you could tell us. <laughs> yeah, we listed actually a number of reasons. I think I had 10 or 12 reasons just from Scripture alone. And then we talked a little bit about some of the scientific evidence uh, for, the, for the worldwide flood. But, but I think it's pretty clear that, that Scripture tells us that the flood was worldwide in its, in its uh, reach, in its, in its extent, and it was not a local flood. And, and really it comes down uh, ultimately to the trustworthiness of, of God's promise when He said uh, there at the end, as we'll get to that when we get to uh, chapter, chapter 8 and chapter 9, that God promises that He'll never send another flood like what He had just sent. If it was a local flood, then obviously God has not kept His word. Uh, but, uh, but there are a number of reasons why we believe both from Scripture and uh, from, uh, as I said, from some scientific evidence. And also we talked about the flood traditions from all over the world that, uh, that uh, indicate to us that it was in fact a, a, a catastrophe of worldwide significance. So what else? you remember anything else we talked about? Okay. Okay. And our conclusions were. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Obviously, I clearly believe the flood account is accurate, uh, and it's to be taken at, at face value. And we'll be talking some more, of course, about its significance. We talked a little bit about how, uh, how uh, as you move on through Scripture, the flood account is referred to. Uh, a number of times in Scripture. It's referred to in the Psalms as evidence of, of God's greatness and God's majesty over creation. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's talked about, for example, in Isaiah as evidence of God's, uh, as a reason for Israel to believe that God is going to be faithful in preserving them and saving them. He goes back to the Noahic covenant and he refers to that as evidence for for why Israel should have confidence that God is going to save them. Jesus uses the flood as, as an example or as an illustration of the absolute certainty of the coming judgment of God. Uh, Peter uses the flood also as an example of the certainty of God's judgment. And he uses it also, inter uh, interestingly enough, he uses it to refute the idea of uniformitarianism that we talked about last week. The idea that things have always been uh, and, and always will be the way they have been since the beginning, that there really has, hasn't been any uh, catastrophe, but that everything just kind of goes on by the same laws and principles that they always have. And Peter refutes that idea, and he uses the flood as an example of, of a catastrophe that disproves uniformitarianism and establishes the idea of catastrophism. Okay? So, that, so we see that the flood... Uh, as Debbie said, the flood is uh, the whole idea of the flood and the ark and Noah. That whole story is is a crucial element in Christian theology and in Christian teaching, and uh, so that's why we're <coughs> taking <coughs> excuse me a considerable amount of time to think about it. We've talked about it for the last couple of weeks. We'll talk about it today. Of course, we'll spend at least a week or two in chapter eight and a week or two in chapter nine at least. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about this. So uh, yes. Uh-huh. And um some of what we were reading in a Christian science textbook. Christian not Christian science, but Christian gotcha. science was um you know, and and I had known this, but there are cultural accounts and accounts of a flood in many different cultures. Did you address that at all? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked about it quite a bit, yeah. Mm -hmm. And how that even confirms the fact that there was a worldwide flood because they had no contact with each other, the societies and the cultures that have a flood account until after these flood accounts supposedly were written down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, uh, actually, the the significance of these, and, and we talked about the fact that there are at least <clears throat> at least some 230 identifiable different flood traditions in different cultures all over the world: South America, and Europe, and Greenland, and the United States. Uh, uh, of course, in the Mesopotamia area, just all over the world, you have these flood accounts. 
And the significance of the flood accounts of all these flood traditions, and they vary uh, as you would expect them to after this many, these many years. They vary uh, to some degree. But they have striking similarities. Of course, they all have a, they all have a flood of some nature uh, in which everybody in the world is destroyed uh, and killed except for uh, uh, the number that that particular tradition says were saved. Sometimes it's, it's, in one, it's really, really interesting. In one, in, flood, in one flood tradition, two guys, uh, two brothers are preserved. Okay, And apparently it doesn't dawn on them that if you only have two people preserved, you have a great deal of problem uh, with the, uh, uh, you know, with uh, creating a human race out of two guys, so uh, and that's kind of an interesting flaw in their tradition. But, but some of them have uh, the names of their heroes are very close close to the name Noah. Some of the flood traditions identify eight specific people who were rescued through the flood. So it's really interesting. You have these 230 uh, some plus, uh, possibly even more tradition. 230 I know that have been identified. And the significance of them is that they all trace their descent from the survivors of the flood. Okay? So obviously it's not that the people over in, in uh, South America and the people in, uh, on Greenland and they were all over the world and they, and they all experienced the flood at the same time. Okay? Because obviously that didn't work. Okay? So the point, the, the point is, is that all these people coming out of the descent of Noah, coming from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all carry this same tradition with them. So as they go out then into all the places all over the world, they carry this flood tradition with them. And as they go out into these various places around the world, then their tradition over a number of centuries and, and millennia begins to adapt, in some cases, uh, some of the local culture. And so as I use examples of that where it adapts some local culture. But yeah, we talked about that quite a bit. And the significance of it is, is that they all trace their lineage back to the survivors of the flood. Okay. And uh, so that is another argument for the, for the significance of this flood tradition. If the flood was only local, then you would have, you would have people all over the world, but nobody else would remember the flood. Just the people from Mesopotamia would remember it. Yes, Rick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just think it's a further elaboration. Yeah, I think it's just a further. Yeah, all of a sudden you got six more pairs. That's right. And some people suggested he needed the extra pairs of the clean animals to eat, but the eating of uh, the eating of animal flesh was not authorized by God until after the flood. So it was apparently rather for the sake of uh, offering sacrifices, I gather, rather than for the sake of him eating it. But I just understand that to be a further clarification in the account that isn't given to us in chapter 6. But thanks for pointing that out. <clears throat> okay, well, let's go on and think some more about, uh, about uh, the flood narrative as a whole and particularly chapter 7. <clears throat> the flood... <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> something in my throat here. <clears throat> My throat gets starts acting up, and he takes a drink. <clears throat> Doesn't work that way, Jim. <clears throat> there are a couple things I want to point out. We talked about this a little bit about the structure of the flood narrative last week, and I want to talk some more about it. Really, the flood narrative begins in chapter six and verse eleven, and it goes up uh, at least uh, into chapter eight, depending on depending on kind of where you choose to consider the, the flood story ended and the rest of the story beginning. But, uh, but generally speaking, uh, I see the flood narrative as going uh, up through chapter 8 and verse 19. So it starts in 6.11 and goes through 8.19. And it's really broken down into uh, a number of distinct sections. Okay? So that in chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, and through the end of chapter 6, we have what we might call the early warning. Okay, This is where God announces that He's going to send this judgment on the earth. He tells Noah he's got to build, he should build an ark, that he's to build an ark, and He tells him exactly how to build it, etc., etc., etc. It's kind of the early warning. We believe, or many believe, I should say, that that probably came at about 120 years or 120 years before the flood. Okay, 
And uh, we won't go back into all the reasons for that. But at any rate, there's obviously got to be ample warning for Noah to be able to go out and, and build this massive ark structure, which I can't imagine how much work it took and what was involved in planning it and laying it out and building it and bringing the lumber and, you know, and having to do this while he's also having to make a living and, and do the farming and everything else that needed to be done. And apparently he only had his three sons uh, to help him. I think it should be pointed out, you know, oftentimes we see pictures of Noah and his three sons building the ark. You see Noah out there and he's old and he's got this big, and he's got these little kids running around, you know, those little eight, nine year old kids running around. That isn't the way it was. You read the story, obviously the children were born at about 500. Noah was about 500 when they were born. And, and uh, the flood comes when he's 600. So obviously these are adult guys that are out there helping him to build, uh, to build the ark. So, any rate, uh, so that's, that's uh, the, the part of the story we get in chapter 6. Then in the first few verses of chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, we have the seven-day warning. That's where God comes to Noah and He says, okay, Noah, you got seven days. You need to get your act together. You know, This is the point at which the ark is now completed and it's time to get all the pots and pans and, and uh, whatever they're going to need, all the food they're going to need to get all that stuff into the ark because now uh, the flood is, is about to happen. So you have the, the seven-day warning in chapter uh, 7, verses 1 through 6. Then picking up in verse 6, and, and uh, or excuse me, verse 7, and down through about verse 16 uh, is, is the day of the flood. Okay? It's a description of what happens, pr- pretty much a description of what happens on the day of the flood. And the specificity of the day is, is uh, emphasized here. The exact uh, day of the flood uh, in, in Noah's life is emphasized. Uh, Noah's entering into the ark on that very day, the day of the flood. That's all stressed in that part of the, in that section of the narrative, okay? And, and all of this that we've had so far, these three sections, the early warning, the seven-day warning, and the day of the flood, those three perspectives, or those three sections are pretty much written from the perspective of Noah, okay? But then in verse, beginning in verse, uh, uh, 17 of chapter 7 and down through the end of the chapter, we really have kind of a major shift because chapter 7, beginning in verse 17, that section there down through the end of the chapter is actually, it's it's kind of a description of the flood from the perspective of people who aren't in the ark. Okay? So it's, it's really the perspective of the flood uh, from the viewpoint of the unrighteous. Okay, so you're you're actually getting now to you're watching the flood as the flood is progressing. So the previous section was the day the flood came, and the things that happened on that day. This section is a description of the four, pretty much the forty days and forty nights so that the rain was falling upon the earth, what that was like, and what was happening. And you'll notice that you're now outside of the ark. You're looking at the things that are happening outside of the ark. And and Noah really, except right at the very end, isn't even referred to. He isn't even mentioned. Okay, uh, and the ark is just kind of this thing that's off there floating on the water. Okay. Uh, then picking up in verse in, in verse one of chapter eight. Uh, and uh, let me get the the the, uh, the verse reference here. Yeah, down through verse twelve. Uh, in chapter eight, verses one through twelve, you have the abating of the waters. The whole story about how the waters ultimately recede over a considerable period of time. And then in chapter eight, verse thirteen, and down through verse nineteen, you have Noah leaving the ark. Noah and the animal and the family, the animals and the families, etc., leaving the ark. Okay. Uh, and then, so they're out of the ark, and that pretty much is the end of the flood story. Then, uh, at that point, you enter into the whole story about the Noahic covenant and the things that follow uh, subsequent to the flood. So that, those are the sections that that are clearly identifiable as you go through the story. And the reason that's important for us to think about is because the writer here, whether whether uh, whether Moses is simply recording for us. Uh, a narrative that he has heard or has been written down before, and he's just he's now uh, recording it for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But whether Noah is pretty much writing most of this himself, uh, whatever the case may be, what is interesting is this phenomenon that we talked about last week, and Debbie mentioned it in our review, is 
is all the repetition that we have as you go through this story. I don't know if you noticed it as we were reading it, but as you read this story, he just keeps saying the same things over and over and over again. And we talked about uh, that that's a, last week we talked about the fact that's a factor of, of, of Hebrew literature. You see a lot of that in Hebrew literature. You notice that as you read the Old Testament, how oftentimes things are repeated. Sometimes, like in the poetry, it's pretty understandable. Poetry a lot of times repeats the thing, same things over and over again. It's part of the poetic construction. But, but we also get it in Hebrew literature. We get it in prose and we get it in narrative like we get it here. Okay, Where he's just simply telling a story, but he says the same things over and over again. Now you'll notice as you look at these various sections uh, of the uh, narrative, as you look at these various sections, you find repetition between the sections. So, for example, in, in one section, he will say, uh, uh, he'll tell us, for example, that the animals came in by twos, okay? And then you get to the next section where he's telling the next part of the story and he, and he repeats that same idea. So, there are repetitions between sections, as you move from section to section, a given section repeats things that were said in the previous section or in a previous section. But you also get repetition within the section. So that sometimes within the section itself, you get, you get Moses or the narrator, you get him saying the same things over and over again. Now, he doesn't say them verbatim in most cases over and over again, but he says he's basically communicating the same idea over and over again. For example... Uh, when he talks about the animals coming in by twos, male and female. okay, He says that several different ways, but it's the same thing. He's saying it over and over and over again. Okay? And, and this is so striking. I, I don't know, uh, I, there may be, but I don't know of any other passage in Scripture that has as much repetition as this passage has. Some of you know that one of my techniques for, uh, for study as I study uh, to teach is I always try to make sure that I have memorized the entire passage that I'm going to teach. It just helps me get a better handle on it and be more equipped to teach it if I've, if I've memorized it verbatim. And I tell you, I failed on this one. <laughs> this passage is just extremely difficult to memorize. I, I could have done it if I had devoted more time and been a little more diligent. But I spent a week, uh, parts of a week, working on memorizing these 24 verses, and I couldn't get it. I'd get them down for a while, and then I'd come back to them a few hours later or the next day, and I try, and I couldn't. And the reason was, is all this silly repetition. Because he just keeps saying the same. And I could, okay, did he say that? This time, or am I remembering this repetition? And, and he wouldn't repeat it verbatim. He'd change it a little bit. So in one place, he talks about him coming by twos. In another place, he talks about him coming two by two, male and female. In another place, he talks about him coming male by male and female, but he does not mention them coming by twos. And so I'm trying to remember all this, and I didn't do a very good job of learning this passage because, because of all this repetition. Okay. Well, as we talked about last week, there's a reason for all this repetition. And the reason is what? Okay. The issue is these things are important. Our problem as modern day people reading English, when we read this stuff and we read this repetitions over and over again, what do we tend to do? Pardon? Yeah, we just blank it out. Oh, I've read that before. Okay. So it's really having just the opposite effect on us that the Holy Spirit intends for it to have. The effect it's having on us is we go, oh, I heard that. You know, you already said that. And, and we just kind of just, you know, we kind of get brain dead. It's like if you, if you, take your, you take your finger and you start thumping on your hand like this or thumping on your arm and you just do it for a while. You know, at first it hurts, but if you just keep doing it after a while, it gets numb, you know, and then you don't feel it anymore. You know, try it someday. You believe me. Take my word for it. Anyway, you get numb. Okay. Well, that's what happens to us with all this repetition. And so the challenge for us as we look at this passage is not to ignore the repetition, but to pay attention to the repetition. Okay. And last week I mentioned for you uh, some of the repetitions. Uh, I just mentioned uh, I think four or five of them. Today I want to mention. I want to go through and list. All of them that I could see in a relatively short period of time as I sat down yesterday or the day before and jotted them down just so I could get a list of them. And I came up with about 19 different things 
that are repeated at least once. Many of them repeated four or five times. Okay? You don't necessarily need to take these down, but I want you to listen to them, think about them. You can go back and look at them yourself. Okay? And the reason I want to read them off all to you is, is not because we're going to talk about every one of them. Today, I only want to pick uh, maybe three or four of these repetitions for us to meditate on. But the reason I want to read them all to you is so that you will realize they're there. And you realize that whatever we talk about today, we've only scratched the surface of the significance that is loaded into this chapter. And I'm only talking about chapter 7, incidentally. I'm not, here, the repetitions I'm listing for you are only the repetitions I see within chapter 7. <laughs> there are other repetitions when you compare chapter 7 with chapter 6 and chapter 7 with chapter 8. I'm just talking about the ones that are in chapter 7, just for the sake of giving you some understanding. So my challenge to you is, whatever we talk about today, there are some repetitions that were, there are many, the majority of repetitions, we're not going to talk about. And my challenge to you is, Go home this week. Crack open chapter 7 and think about some of the repetitions that we don't talk about today. And ask yourself, what is the significance of those? What is God trying to tell me? What is, what is the lesson that I can learn from those? Okay. Well, uh, so for example, and, and like I said, I think I have 18 or 19 of them here. So I'll, just, I'll list them off to you. Uh, the first repetition we have is the concept of, of Noah entering the ark. It's uh, referred to at least three different times in the chapter. When we talk about the animals, there are numerous repetitions. Uh, there's the, there's uh, three repetitions of the concept of them coming by twos. There's three repetitions of the concept of them coming male and female. There's two repetitions, at least, of the idea of clean and unclean. When I say there's this many repetitions, I may have missed some. I'm, these are the ones I, cl- I just identified uh, almost superficially. Uh, There are four repetitions in one verse of the concept of after its kind in reference to the animals. There are five references, five distinct references to the animals entering the ark, to the actual event of them entering the ark. There are two references that talk about the animals coming to Noah. Okay, And we'll talk some about the significance. I hope we'll we'll get a chance to talk some about the significance of that today. The idea of the period of seven days, that seven-day warning is mentioned twice. The idea of the rain coming for 40 days and 40 nights is mentioned three times. Uh, The idea of God blotting out every living thing in which was the breath of life is mentioned four times. Noah's obedience is mentioned three times. Noah's age is mentioned twice. Noah's family is mentioned four times. The specificity of the day of the flood is mentioned four times. The coming of the flood is mentioned four times. The prevailing of the waters is mentioned five times. The floating of the ark is mentioned three times. The covering of the mountains is mentioned twice. And the breath of life is mentioned twice. All of those are just repetitions within chapter 7. Okay. And today I just want to think about just a handful of those. Yes, sir. Um, I got stuck on something you said a minute ago, and I wondered if you want, thought about this or concluded. You said here in our culture we skip over that, as I, I know I do that too. You read it as repetitive, and oh yeah, I go on. So the implication is they in their culture did not do that. So the question is how or I think I think we know why because it was important. Right. The question is how? How did they do that? How did how did that not happen to them? Because that seems like a well, it, human. Uh, it may have tended to happen to them, but I think uh, I I would assume that they developed the same thing we need to develop, which is a discipline uh. of not being lazy. <laughs> well, I am too. I am too. So that's what that's what I tend to do. When I get the repetitions, I tend to skip over them. That's laziness. But what we need to do is develop the discipline of going. Wait a minute. He just said that. Why did he say it again? Okay. And and uh, and I'm assuming that that because the Hebrews were accustomed to that type of literature, that they were probably more disciplined in that regard. So uh, that would be my answer. Uh, whether it's correct or not. Another thing, though, uh, many of the people here were illiterate, and when you read something, you tend to tune it out. When you yes. hear it, yes, right. and, 
you tend to make it more. Yes, yes. And and one of the things we need to remember is that is that because of that illiteracy, many of these narratives were composed for the sake of memorization. Okay. Well, as I said to you, I had trouble memorizing this. Okay. But I was trying to memorize a good section of the whole narrative. If I was trying to memorize it simply by its sections, it would have been easier to do. Okay? And and actually then some of that repetition would have been would have been helpful to me, but because of the bulk that I was trying to memorize at one time it was a it was a problem. So Well thinking about what you just said, I know from having uh, coaching different sports mm-hmm. that usually the first time most people don't hear it. Yeah. Yeah. And so you repeat it and end up repeating three or four times. Yeah to make sure everybody gets it, which drove me crazy. Almost. You only yeah. repeated it. Yeah. Yeah, why didn't you listen the first time? It's yeah. pretty clearly stated, and so I guess maybe that's part of what's happening yeah. too. And, and, and people who talk about public speaking and talk about teaching and preaching talk about the fact that, that for your audience to actually hear and absorb the things you're saying, you need to repeat them seven times if you want them to learn it. So... Uh, <laughs> seven times. Um, so, at any rate, that, that is a factor to be considered. Well, obviously the Lord thought a number of these things were important. And I want to take some time this morning to look at three or four that he repeated. And then if we have time, I want to look at two or three things that he only said once. Okay. So, first of all, the first thing I want to, point, want to talk about, the first, the first thing that was on my list was this idea of Noah entering the ark. And you'll notice that it's repeated several times. It's repeated in, it's repeated in the section of the seven-day warning, and then it's repeated again in the section about, uh, uh, about the actual day of the flood. And, and he's very specific about this idea that Noah entered the ark. Noah entered the ark. He entered the ark with his family. Okay, and and he's very specific about it. Well, in our understanding of this whole flood narrative, I need to back up here for a second. In our understanding of the whole flood narrative, and 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 trying to figure out why do we even bother studying this? I mean, I know it's interesting as little kids. It was kind of fun when we were in Sunday school, you know, and we heard the flood story and we saw the pictures of all the animals coming by two and Noah there with his big gray beard and the big boat. And and that all kind of fired our imagination as children. But why as adults do we even bother to study the flood story? What difference does it make? Well, the scriptures teach us quite clearly that back here in the Old Testament, many of these accounts and narratives that we read in the Old Testament have profound significance to us. Paul tells us in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, he tells us these things happened for a reason. They happened as an example to us. Now, they were real events that happened to real people and they were significant in and of themselves to those people at that time. Okay, But they also serve as an illustration to us to teach us something. And that's what Paul tells us there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he's talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness. He said those things happen to them as an example to us that we might learn. And then he lists some of the things that we're to learn from the children of Israel. Okay. Well, that's a principle when we go back into the Old Testament and we study these old stories. The question is, what is the relevance? What is the significance to us? And one of the things that we encounter in the Old Testament is the concept of type and anti-type. Okay. And what we have here in the story of Noah is this idea of the type and anti-type uh, at work. Okay, And when we're talking about type and anti-type, uh, what we encounter in the Old Testament is we encounter a number of types. And I'll explain in just a minute uh, how this is one. Uh, but we encounter a number of types. And then when we get to the New Testament, we encounter the anti-type. Okay? And when we say anti-type, we don't mean it's against it like anti-Christ. Okay? But... To use an illustration, when I walk out today, assuming, and this is quite an assumption I know, that the sun will still be shining when I get outdoors today, as I walk out on the out into the parking lot, there will be on the parking lot a what? Well, yeah, a shadow. There will be a shadow. And wherever I go on the parking lot, there will be a shadow. That shadow is the type. What is the anti-type? No shadows. No? no real Which is? Me. Thank you. Somebody just said I'm the real thing. Okay. Okay. So, 
So when we're talking about type and anti-type, the type is the shadow and the anti-type is the reality. Okay? And so we need to understand that one of the things that's going on here is that God is not only judging the world by the means of the, of the flood and saving Noah through the ark and all that sort of... That's a real event that is really happening. But it also serves, we understand when we get to the New Testament, it serves as a type anti-type. That the flood is really a shadow of a far greater reality. Okay? So the flood is a, the flood is a, is a, the whole flood, Noah, Noah's Ark thing. If it is the shadow, what is the reality? Okay, God's judgment and what else? Okay, that salvation and salvation through Christ. Okay, so as we look at the flood narrative, one of the things we want to look at is this type anti-type thing. We want to figure out what what is this what is this illustrating to us? Okay, so in the flood narrative, we have the idea of the flood. The flood. If the flood is the type, what is the anti-type? Judgment, okay? If Noah is the, is the type, what is the anti-type? Us. Us, okay? If the ark is the type, what is the anti-type? We the cross, wouldn't it? Well, more specifically, what, is, what does Peter tell us? We are, when, when Peter draws this analogy, and he, what, what do we have to be in? Baptized into Christ, right? Okay. So if the ark is the type, Christ is the anti-type. Okay. Once we understand that, then we go back and we notice that one of the things that the Holy Spirit repeats for us in this passage is the reality that Noah entered the ark. Noah entered the ark. Noah entered the ark. Noah entered the ark with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. Noah entered the ark with his whole household. Noah entered the ark with Shem, Ham, and Japheth and his wife and his three sons' wives. Over and over again, the Holy Spirit is stressing to us that Noah entered the ark. But that is only a type. The anti-type, the reality, is, is the idea of, of Christ being the ark. And that salvation is in Christ. And so if we want to experience salvation from the reality of God's judgment, we can look back at the type in the Old Testament the account of the flood, the narrative of the flood, and we see that Noah, in order to escape what was admittedly only a temporal judgment, that Noah, in order to escape judgment, what did he do? He entered the ark. And it is an illustration to us of what you and I must do if we want to have salvation. We have got to be in Christ. So the story of the flood becomes much more than just a child's Bible story about some exciting, scary things that happened a long time ago, but it becomes an illustration to us of the imperative that we be in Christ. So this ark becomes really pretty significant, doesn't it? It becomes pretty important. It is the means of salvation. But I would suggest to you, and we'll see here in just a minute, it was not the only means of salvation in the minds of some. And so we'll consider what was in a few minutes when we look at one of the other repetitions, we'll look at one of the other means of salvation that some thought they had. But Noah entered the ark. Now, another thing that's repeated over and over again, and closely tied to this idea of Noah entering the ark and to some, some, some of the other things that Noah did, this is the idea of Noah's obedience. Did you notice that? As we're reading through the passage, how oftentimes it says, as the Lord commanded Noah, as the Lord commanded Noah, as the Lord commanded Noah. 
<laughs> he says it over and over again. I think he's trying to tell us something. <laughs> that Noah did what he was told to do. Okay, And he did it in reference to the building of the ark and the construction of the ark. And then the warning comes and he's told, you know, he needs to get everything ready and he gets everything and he, and he comes into the ark and he says he came into the ark as the Lord told him to. And, but here's an issue. I don't know if you notice this. But over and over again, it talks about the animals coming into the ark, right? And one of the things it says over and over again, repeats about two or three times, about the animals coming into the ark is that they came in the ark to Noah. To Noah. To Noah. Okay? And, and the thing that's interesting to me about that is, is that God, in, in the initial declaration back in chapter 6, says, I want you to get all these animals and get them in the ark, right? Okay? So Noah's command was to rescue the animals. But when we come down to the actual putting this thing together, is that the story tells us that the animals came to Noah. So Noah wasn't out there, you know, riding his horse around all over, uh, corralling up these animals. He was just busy building the ark and making the cages and providing the food. And he's there in the ark and the animals are coming to him. But the interesting thing is, two or three times when it talks about the animals coming to Noah, it says, as the Lord commanded Noah. Notice that? So, so what's going on here is that God has given Noah some command about rescuing these animals. And God is somehow working in the animals to bring them into the ark. It's not too hard for us to understand. We understand how animals do that kind of thing. It's pretty fascinating. We don't have time to talk about it this morning. But So the animals are coming to Noah, but somehow Noah in all of that is still being obedient. It says, as the Lord commanded Noah. Well, one of the things that strikes me about that is that when God commands us to do something, He always makes every provision for us to do it. And I don't know exactly what Noah's responsibility was for the animals. Obviously, he had to provide food. He had to provide all the rooms on the ark that it talks about in chapter 6. He had, to do all that. he had to do all that stuff, okay? And he had to, I don't know, when they came on the ark, I don't know if he had to direct them into their cubicle or whatever. I don't know what he did. But Noah had some responsibility to God. And God took that seriously. And Noah took that seriously. And Noah did what God commanded him to do. But the fascinating thing to me was that God made all that possible. That God made Noah's obedience possible and provided him with everything he needed to be obedient. Well, Noah could have, in disobeying, he could have refused sure. that provision. So, so it was necessary for him to obey to allow God's provision. To Absolutely. As he could have refused to build the ark or any number of things. At any point, he could have frustrated the people. Well, the point I was making is it seemed kind of out of his hands. The animals were coming in. He didn't have to do anything. Well, he could have disobeyed by saying, no, not you. Yeah, absolutely. So there's clearly some responsibility he had, yes. Well, the other thing we have to understand is what was the source of Noah's obedience? What does Hebrews tell us was the source of his obedience? Faith. Faith. We must remember that Noah's faith did not grow out of his obedience, but his obedience grew out of his faith. Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says that in faith, by faith, Noah in reverence prepared an ark. So his faith was the initiating action. Okay. And it was by faith, chapter 11, verse 7 tells us, it is by faith that Noah became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Okay? So, the faith was the origin of Noah's obedience. Now, I want, I want, to, make a, a, I want to make an important distinction here for us. Noah was saved through the ark, Right? But how was Noah saved through the ark? Only temporally, right? Whatever you see in the story of Noah and the flood, remember it's all temporal. It's all temporal. Now we know because of the way Noah acted that he was a man of faith 
who also was saved eternally by his faith. But the ark story itself and the flood story itself is a story of temporal judgment. It's not a story of eternal judgment. Okay? So we need to keep that in mind and that's one of the reasons why we say it's only a shadow. It's only a type. Okay. So with Noah, we see outwardly his outward signs of righteousness in, the, in his building of the ark and following God's commandments and receiving the animals and etc. Cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We see outwardly his outward, uh, the, the signs and evidences of righteousness, but that righteousness really grows out of an inner righteousness which he has by faith. And so Noah obeyed God. And he obeyed God over and over and over again, even though it must have been at times very difficult to do. It would have been difficult to even believe in this kind of a catastrophic, disastrous judgment. That would have been hard. Nobody had ever seen anything like that. It would have been hard building the ark. Can you imagine how much work that was to build that ark? Just you and your three guys, you know? <laughs> that's, a, that's quite a chore building that ark. That's a lot of work. And there was probably a lot of laughing and a lot of mocking and a lot of opposition to him building the ark. I'm sure his neighbors went to the city council and said, we need an ordinance that says you can't build an ark in your backyard. You know, I'm sure he had opposition. And yet Noah obeyed the Lord. Well, <clears throat> another thing that's repeated over and over again, I'm going to fast forward here at this point. Another thing that's repeated over and over again is this idea of the prevailing of the waters. Did you know that? Did you notice that? You get down there to uh, beginning in about verse 17. It talks about the water coming on the earth. The water increased. Verse 18, the water prevailed. Verse 19, the water prevailed. Verse 20, the water prevailed. Verse uh, 23 uh, or 24, the water prevailed. This idea of the water prevailing. And this is where we enter into that part, that section of the story in which the narrator takes us away from Noah and out of the ark and he puts us outside the ark. So now we're watching this whole event unfold from the perspective of the wicked. And the thing that he stresses over and over and over again is this idea of the waters prevailing. Now the waters are the type. What is the anti-type? I've already asked this question. He answered it right once. You should be able to get it right the second time. Pardon? The judgment. Okay. And the idea that the writer is conveying to us over and over and over and over again is the waters prevailed, the waters prevailed, the waters prevailed. Now, he mentions something in particular twice that the waters prevailed over, which was what? Uh, yeah, that. That's not one I had. That makes 20. What else? Mountains. The mountains. Okay. Twice he mentions the mountains. The water prevailed over the mountains. Now remember a minute ago I said to you that I think that there were two ideas prevalent in society at that time. Well, actually only one was prevalent. One wasn't all that prevalent. But there were two ideas in society at that time as how to be saved from the flood. We've been talking about the first idea, which was build an ark. What's the second idea? Get on a mountain. Get on a mountain. And I think the mountains represent to us those things that mankind looks to in hopes that it will save him from the judgment of God. And, 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 and the thing that, that, that the story emphasizes to us is the prevailing of the waters, the prevailing of the judgment of God. And so the fountains burst open, all the great fountains of the deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky are open. It begins to rain, and it rains for 40 days. And I don't know how long this process took. He doesn't really tell us how long it took, but apparently it took at least 40 days for this water to rise up and, 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 and cover the tops of the mountains. So you can see this process going on. First the waters come and they fill out, they fill in the gorges and the deep places in the earth. And then they fill the 
lesser valleys, you know, the lower valleys. The waters begin to fill the valleys. This may have happened in a matter of hours or a matter of days or weeks. It fills in the valleys. Then eventually it begins to fill to cover the low hills uh, in all over the world. And eventually it begins to cover the, the mountains and then the greater mountains and then the greatest mountains, whichever greater, the greatest mountains of them all, whichever, whatever they were and whatever their altitude was, as I said last week. I don't believe that Mount Everest and some of our great mountains were that high at that time. Okay, but so this process is going on, and I think that is an illustration to us of the totality of the judgment of God over man. So that if you're and whatever reason the Holy Spirit does this, and I can think of several reasons why He does this, He takes us outside of the ark. He wants us to see this picture from outside of the ark. He doesn't want us just riding in the ark and nice and safe and comfortable, but He wants us to stop and think, what would it be like if I were outside of the ark? What would I see? And then He describes for us what we would see if we were outside of the ark. And what we would see is this progression of the water starting low. And we, you know, of course, we're pretty intelligent, some of us. And, you know, and we have an instinct for self-preservation. So what would we do when the waters began to fill up the lower valleys? We'd go higher, you know. We'd get up on the plains, you know. And then as the waters raise and begin to cover the plains, we'd go up into the hills, and then as the waters cover the hills, we'd go up into the mountains and we'd try and find the biggest, tallest, most majestic mountain we could find. Well, I think that's certainly an illustration to us of man's confidence in his own righteousness. And the mountains, the mountains, I think, represent to us man's greatest deeds of self-righteousness. And what we discover is if you're not in the ark, it doesn't matter where you are. You will be covered by the judgment of God. So, there are a lot of people who say, well, I'm pretty good. <laughs> I'm better than my neighbor. My neighbor doesn't mow his lawn every week. I mow my lawn every week, you know. My neighbor cheats on his taxes. I pay my taxes. You know. My 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 neighbor. He's you know he cusses and swears, but I don't cuss and swear. My neighbor. He sleeps in on Sunday morning, but I get up and I go to church. My neighbor. He hoards all of his money, but I give my money. I give money to the church, and I give money to the Red Cross, and I, you know, and and. Uh, and I help Habitat for Humanity, and I do all these works. And so somehow I imagine that I am going to escape the judgment of God because of my great righteousness. And I might actually manage to do some really astonishingly good works so that I have an entire mountain of righteousness upon which to climb. But ultimately, the flood of waters will prevail 15 cubits over the highest mountain. And, and so, if you can visualize for a moment, here is somebody who's standing on the mountain. You know, a few people have managed to, to get that far. And they're standing on this mountain, but, but the water is rising and now is lapping at their feet and they're and they're panic-stricken now because they realize if it's come this far, it could come all the way. But they're still hoping. And then the water rises to their knees and then to their waist and then to their chest. And they look out over the waters and over there, off in the distance, what do they see? An ark floating. And they realize that in that ark, there is a man and his family and they are safe. And here I am. And I am being judged. And I am going to perish because I'm not in that ark. 
And it doesn't matter how great of a mountain I have erected. You know. Somebody says, well, Rick, you don't understand. There was a time in my life when I, when I walked down the aisle and I made a profession of faith. I don't care if you made a profession of faith. The question is, are you in the ark? Well, Rick, you don't understand. I, you know, I, I wrote out one of those cards. I filled out one of those cards about becoming a Christian. I don't care if you filled out a card. The question is, are you in the ark? Are you in Christ? Well, Rick, I was baptized. I don't care if you were baptized. The question is, are you in the ark? There is no mountain high enough. But what the judgment of God will not overflow it. There's no righteous act of mine. No matter how great. No matter how much people may pat me on the back and give me a Nobel Prize for righteousness. It does not matter. I stand under the judgment of God unless somehow I can get in the ark. And so we come then to the end of chapter chapter uh, uh, 7 there and there's and there's all this judgment and there's all this destruction, but the Lord just gives us this little glimpse there at the end where He says in 23, Thus He blotted out everything that was upon the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. And so I and so I see this picture then this this graphic illustration for me that God has given to us in the whole story of the flood and Noah and the ark. This graphic picture of what salvation is all about. And salvation is about being in the ark. The, sal- the salvation is about being in Christ. And it doesn't matter what else I've done. It doesn't matter how good I have been. I've got to be in Christ. Now, for the guy standing there on the mountain, or Noah in the ark, it's all very visual and very obvious, isn't it? But the problem for us is that when we go from the type to the anti-type, it's not nearly that obvious. We can't see it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And so the question is, where am I? Do I just assume I'm in the ark? Or do I make sure I'm in the ark? And of course, that can only be done by faith. But we are enjoined by Scripture. Paul enjoins us to make sure that we are in the faith. We are told to make certain of His calling and choosing us. Make certain we are in the ark. Don't ever take it for granted. You know, and, and I teach this class every week and, and we have good time fellowshipping together and, you know, and I always think of you all as brothers and sisters in Christ. But I think the lesson we're thinking about today makes us all just stop and think and go, am I in the ark? Am I in Christ? There are times when it's appropriate to ask ourselves that question and just make sure you're in the ark. There are three things in this chapter that are probably more but there are three things in this chapter that are said only once. <clears throat> Actually, they're not only said they're not said only once in the whole narrative, but in this chapter they are said only once. And uh, and the first one is there in verse one, where it talks about the righteousness of Noah. There's only really one way for somebody to be invited into the ark. There's only really one way for somebody to to get into the ark. And that's by righteousness. And if the righteousness of the external, a visual righteousness of Noah is the type, the anti-type is the righteousness that comes by faith alone. And Noah was rescued. Noah was saved because he was righteous. Okay? The second thing 
that's mentioned, it's in verse 16, it's something we often talk about, is that God shut the door. Once Noah was in the ark, God shut the door. Noah couldn't get out. Now that's eternal security. Once I am in Christ, God shuts the door. And then the third thing I want to point out that's mentioned only once is that mentioned there in in uh, at the end of of uh, at the end of the chapter there in verse 23 that Noah is preserved in the ark. Noah is in the ark on the water. Noah was safe because he was in the ark. And the question is, are you and I safe? Are we in the ark? Okay. Next week we'll pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 8 where it says God remembered Noah. Okay? That gets pretty exciting. You mentioned that you didn't think the mountain was